Dean Bible Ministries presents the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Robert Dean, pastor of West Houston Bible Church. These and other Bible lessons are available from www.deanbible.org. Now let's listen to our lesson from God's Word, the Bible. Lord, we thank you that we can have this time to sit and be refreshed by the cool waters of your Word, that we can be reminded of eternal truths and that we can look back in history and you're working in history and know that the, that you're the same God at work today that was at work uh, 3,000 years ago in the history of Israel. Father, we pray that as we study these things that we'll get not only great insight into the historical realities of your work in Israel, but also the patterns that continue to run throughout history because you are a changeless God. We pray that you'll... <clears throat> Help us to concentrate and focus this evening, put aside the distractions of tomorrow or whatever happened today, and that we'll be able to focus on your word. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, before we get started into 1 Kings, or while you're trying to find your way to 1 Kings, and I think everybody has their charts from last week. Anybody not have charts? If you <clears throat> if you don't have charts, it's too late. Doug's sitting down. He's not going to go get them. Somebody sent this to me today via email, and it has to do with a uh, little report on a national meeting of emergent church meetings. Now, those of you who live in a cave and don't know what the emergent church is, emergent church is the new uh, glitch that some of us would call the new heretical glitch in trying to fix what's wrong with the body of Christ. And, of course, every time you hear that, that we're going to straighten things out, that means they're just going to... Uh, funnel a whole boatload of human viewpoint into the church to try to make it uh, less uncomfortable for unbelievers to be there. So that's the emergent church. Let's just all get sit around in sofas and listen to whatever music we want to, contemplate our navels, and figure out what we can do. It's heavily postmodern. What I want to know here, think about this. In this little news release, they're talking about trying to understand some basic statements that these groups have come up with. My question is, why do they care if they're postmodern? In postmodernism, meaning is determined by the hearer, not by the person who writes something. So why do you really care if there's any meaning? Let's just all say we agree and we're happy and it can mean whatever we want it to and let's go home. Okay, opening summary. Emergent leaders call for, quote, missional re-understanding of Jesus' followership and Christ's focus imbued with passionate creativity and emotional authenticity. Anybody, anybody want to translate that for me? <laughs> this is a new buzzword, missional, that I have become aware of in the last year. And <clears throat> we were talking about it at the pastor study a couple of weeks ago. And it, it, um, even though if you go out and <clears throat> check Wikipedia, it has... The basic denotation of that of, of a church that is focused on its mission, it understands its objective, purpose, that sort of thing. But the term really has been picked up and has become jargon within the emergent church movement and is heavily loaded with all kinds of ideas and concepts and agendas that none of us would want to be associated with. So you really have to be careful what kind of vocabulary you pick up when you're walking through seminaries. Uh, <clears throat> missional re-understanding of Jesus' followership and Christ's focus imbued with passionate creativity 
and emotional authenticity. Authenticity is another one of those buzzwords, if you haven't noticed. Everything I read coming out of the church, we need to be authentic. He has authentic leadership. I guess I got tired of real. I don't know. Out of Cedar Rapids, Iowa, at a recent conference, conference-like gathering of church leaders, various factions sparred over competing visions for the future of the movement. Leaders on one side called for, quote, deepening and continuously beautiful efforts toward emotionally true self-divulgence and confession, close quote. Other leaders countered with a call for, quote, a theological repurposing of our objective and subjective missionality within a framework of God love, close quote. Because few in attendance actually understood what either side meant, (laughs) both ideas were tabled. The sides did agree that emergent leaders should continue to take every opportunity to make casual, cool cultural references to popular television shows, movies, and Internet phenomena to reintroduce quasi-intellectual spiritual points about the state of the American church. They also pledged to maintain their reputation for being, quote, more spiritually honest than the millions of people who attend institutionalized churches every week and blindly go along with the program sermons and mindset that make American Christianity the colossal failure it is today. After, well, it's, that's, unfortunately, that's true. You know, the problem is that a lot of people can sit around and tell you what's wrong with any institution. But just because somebody happens to punch, always remember this, I learned this years ago. In seminary, you constantly hear people come up and do an accurate critique of something. It's just that their solution was wrong. All kinds of people can accurately point out what's wrong with any institution or movement or organization or group. But just because they happen to pick out the things that are wrong that you like seeing being pointed out that are wrong doesn't mean their solution is right either. So it concludes by saying, after toasting themselves with various hyper-cool microbrews, the audience adjourned to begin seven- and eight-hour theological bull sessions in their hotel rooms and local bars. Conference organizers say they will meet again to do the same thing next year. You just got to love, <coughs> love the blind leading the spiritually blind leading the spiritually blind. Okay, we are in First Kings. Last week we were looking at some of the overview issues and looking at it. The First Kings is really the tale of two kingdoms, a story about initially the United Kingdom, then the divided kingdom, and then the single kingdom. And I had this chart that you should still have in front of you that covers both both books together. Remember when I said that both of these books were written as one book. So we really are going to talk about them a lot in terms of kings, although because they are written as first kings or second kings, you know, a lot of times we'll go back and forth, so you have to maintain a little flexibility there. First Kings 1 through, here are the three major divisions, First Kings 1 through 11, First Kings 12 through Second Kings 17, and Second Kings 18 to 25. If you can just think of, you know, one, two, one, you've got it. United Kingdom, two kingdoms, and then 
one kingdom alone. It starts off with the United Kingdom, Judah and Israel, all 12 tribes united, Saul, David, Solomon. Although in 1 Kings we just barely see the end of David's reign and then Solomon's reign. Then we have the divided kingdom. Northern kingdom begins with Jeroboam I. Jeroboam I introduces idolatry into the north, though not Baalism. That doesn't come until a little later until a little later on. Northern, the, then you have the southern kingdom of Judah, made up of <clears throat> Judah and Benjamin and actually elements of the other tribes. Then you have the single kingdom at the end after the northern kingdom is taken out under divine discipline in 722 B.C. It's Judah alone for about another 150 years from 2 Kings 18 to 25. Here's a time frame breakdown, 40 years of Solomon, 209 years approximately. Uh, I got real confused on this because I consulted about four different sources and they all broke the time differently. It's Once again, we're going to look at that chronological issue, but for now we'll summarize it this way until I get revelation otherwise. 209 years for the divided kingdom and then about 135 years or so. Uh, that's probably closer to 150. I don't know why that one source said 135, but anyway. Here are the dates, 971 to 931. 931 to 972, and 722 to 586. The kings, we start off with David at the end of his reign, and then Solomon. Then there is the division of the kingdom, God's discipline on Solomon for his paganism. Solomon is a great picture of how somebody who has everything can end up in pure relativism. It is this, in fact, just like I said last week, just like judges, the, this whole history of kings is a, is a demonstration of what relative thinking will do to a culture. And there's so obviously there's some great lessons for us because we live in the middle of a, one of the most relativistic cultures in history. All right, that's our initial chart flyover overview. Then I started into just giving you a summary of the book. The Kings is <clears throat> describes what happens in a nation in disobedience to God, specifically God's chosen nation. Always remember this. Israel is not like any other nation. Israel is not like any other nation. So no matter what terms we use to describe it, we have to be very, very careful to distinguish between how God deals with Israel and how God deals with all other nations. Therefore, terms such as client nation are terms that have to be refined a little bit. You can't use it to refer to, if you use it to refer to Israel, you can't use it to refer to anybody else. Because Israel is, and I prefer to use the term covenant nation, because God enters into a covenant with Israel that distinguishes Israel from all other nations. Second point is God promises Israel a chunk of real estate with specific boundaries, and God doesn't promise any other ethnic group in history a piece of real estate. The, the French don't have any right to the uh, land of France. The Germans don't have any right to the land of Germany. The Americans certainly have no right to this land. The British have no right to their land. Frankly, all those in Europe are getting ready to lose them all to Muslims anyway. And uh, But nobody, no ethnic group has a claim on their particular land from God. 
Only Israel does. Now, when we get into the discipline chapters in, at the end of Leviticus and Deuteronomy, Leviticus chapter 26 and 28, which describes the five cycles of discipline, those five cycles are all related to what happens in relation to the nation's obedience to God in the land. Let me say that again. It relates to how that when they're in the land, if they're obedient, God will bless them. If they're disobedient, he's going to have these five cycles, these five stages uh, of discipline. That can't be applied to anybody else at all because it's predicated on the assumption that Israel has a right to the land. If you're in the land where God promised blessing, then if you're obedient, there'll be blessing. If you're disobedient, there won't be. And I'll take you out of the land. That's the fifth cycle of discipline. I'll take you out of the land. And and the only reason that's significant is because God promised them the land. So you can't take those five cycles. of You can see certain patterns and trends, of course, that happen throughout history. But, but that's extremely general. So you have to be careful how you apply those things. And we live, of course, in the church age, but we live in what is called biblically the times of the Gentiles. And the times of the Gentiles began in uh, 586 B.C. when Israel was taken, when Judah was taken out of the land. Israel was already out of the land. And so Gentile powers dominated Israel from that point to the present, even though you had a couple of times under the, uh, under the Maccabees in the intertestamental period when they tried to achieve some level of autonomy, they really couldn't even sneeze without getting permission from either the uh, Seleucids or the Ptolemies or somebody like that. And then under the Romans, they certainly couldn't do anything, even though they had a, you know, had uh, you know, King Herod and they had a form of territorial government. It wasn't any kind of independence. And today they really don't. I mean, if it weren't for the hegemony of the United States of America, if it weren't for their power base, uh, Israel would disappear tomorrow. It is still, God is still protecting Israel by way of Gentile powers, and, and, and Jerusalem's going to be trodden down, we're told, under the Gentiles until Christ returns. And during the, during the tribulation, Jerusalem is going to be, uh, harshly treats uh, like a millstone around the neck of the nations, Zechariah says. So what Kings is showing is the outworking of these blessings and cursings in relationship to the spiritual condition of the people. And we see that the nation begins in glory at the height of its glory, the heights of its power, the territorial expansion, although it's at its largest extent. We'll see a map in a minute. A largest extent under Solomon, it, it, the, the Jews do not actually live in all that territory. It's sort of a tribute territory, but that's the, the most they get. They still don't control all the land God promised Abraham. So it begins with this glory and ends out of the land. The land's destroyed. Jerusalem's a smoldering ruin, and the temple is destroyed. The nation begins walking with God. We're told at the very beginning that Solomon loved God. Now, what does that mean in biblical terminology? When you read in the Bible that so-and-so loved God, how does the Bible say that you demonstrate that you love God? You feel good? Warm and fuzzy and 
singing the right songs, got some good choruses going, good Christian praise band. No, you know you love God because you obey the Lord. And that's clear all the way through Deuteronomy. You demonstrate you love the Lord because you're obedient. So when the Scripture says, God says, so-and-so loved God, and that's Solomon. That means Solomon was obedient to God, as probably as obedient as any fallen person can be. So the nation begins with a high standard and ends walking with foreign gods, and that's really depicted. Solomon sets the stage, and he starts to compromise with relative thought. The more he spends time with with wives that come from these foreign countries, the more he compromises with their belief systems, then the more the more he gives in, the more he changes until he personally is wiped out spiritually, and the same thing happens to the nation. The nation begins in prosperity and ends in despair and defeat, and the movement goes from single monarchy to divided monarchy to destroyed monarchy. Okay, we looked at, in terms of the introduction, we looked at about four things last time. We looked at the title, which is originally just kings, related to the fact that it was just one scroll. The Septuagint called it kingdoms and broke it down, was the first to break it down into two parts. You had first and second kingdoms is what we call first and second Samuel. Third and fourth kingdoms was was uh, what we call first and second kings. This was followed in the Vulgate. The English-based the title on the content which related to the kings of Israel and Judah. We looked at authorship. The second point was authorship. It's unknown. Jewish tradition says that it was Jeremiah, but we have no biblical record that he ever went from Egypt to Babylon. So we really don't know who the author is. In terms of the date, we're uncertain, but because it records the release, the release of uh Jehoiakim from prison in the 37th year of his imprisonment, uh, we think that it was probably not finished until sometime around 562 to 561 B.C. The purpose, I pointed out three purposes for the book. First, it has a historical purpose for tracing the line of the seed. That's why all these genealogies are important. Tracing the line of the seed from David down through the kingship to the uh, Babylonian captivity. It traces God's working in Israel and Judah down through history. So that's the historical purpose. The theological purpose is to give God's interpretation of history, and that thus it lays the, the third point, which is philosophical. It provides a divine philosophy of history so that later on historians ought to be able to go to the Old Testament and discern a philosophy of history that in turn influences how they can understand and interpret uh, history. Now we're down to uh, <clears throat> the next section, or the fifth section I talked about last time was a literary style. It's historical, it's theological, it's primarily uh, history is the uh, essence of the book. And at the very core of this, we learn that doctrine matters. It's what they believe and what they do with what they believe that affects everything in the nation. It's not because they did they held to Marxist ideas or they held to free market ideas or they didn't quite understand Austrian theories of economics versus uh, Chicago theories of economics. It's none of that. It has to do with ultimately with how they their relationship with God and their application of doctrine. That's what made the difference. 
Now let's look at these other charts that I made for you just to go through the two books themselves. First Kings, this is the first part of that initial chart. So the way you should look at these is that this chart gives you the breakdown of the three divisions, United Kingdom, Divided Kingdom, and Single Kingdom. The next two charts are going to take each subsection and develop it a little more. So we have the United Kingdom from 1-1 to 1143, covers 40 years, and we have three sections, 1-1 to 2-46. Basically, chapter 1 and chapter 2 is the establishment of Solomon as the king of Israel. A lot of scholars join this with the last two chapters in 2 Samuel and put them together and call it the succession narrative. This shows how God establishes Solomon on his throne. There is an attempt by one of his brothers to usurp the throne and to set himself up ahead of time. And uh, word of that conspiracy is brought to David by his uh, trusted advisors and uh, Zadok and uh, uh, <clears throat> they shut it down and anoint Solomon before um, uh, Adon- um, Adonijah can become king. Okay, one one to two forty six. Then we get into the next chapters. Six chapters three through eight describes the rise of Solomon. A lot of detail here. We're not going to go through all of this detail. I'm going to synthesize a lot of this because one of my my primary goal here initially was that I wanted to teach Elijah and Elisha. But then as I got feedback from prep school, they wanted more detail. They needed to have a little more guidance as we go through sections of Kings because that's rarely taught that I thought, okay, we'll spend about maybe a couple of months just dealing with the first 17 chapters and uh, providing that kind of a, a good, you know, a little bit of depth, but we're not going to drill down too deeply. We could drill down very deeply in chapters uh, 5 through 8, dealing with the temple and its dedication and all of that, but I think we can summarize that fairly quickly. So we have the establishment of Solomon, the rise of Solomon, and then chapters 9 through 11, those three chapters, we have uh, the description of Solomon's polygamy, idolatry, and then his, his death. So Solomon is the key person in the first 11 chapters of, of uh, 1 Kings. Then we come to the next slide. Now, one of the things that I'm doing back there in the back in the sound room, make sure everybody's awake and on their toes, is that I got comments last week that this was hard to read on the stream. I checked with people who are out there on the stream, got various comments. Some people said, yeah, it's really good. Other people said, well, no, it's not. Oh, but if I expand it to, to this whole size of the screen, then it looks pretty good. So I just want to do these two charts for some visual comparison back there because I don't get a chance to see what these things look like in terms of the end product. Okay, so we're going to go with this one with a black background to this one with a lighter background. The divided kingdom covers uh, 11 chapters. So we have 11 chapters for the for Solomon, and then we have 11 chapters for the 
divided kingdom in First Kings, the first part of it, the first 90, 90 years or so. The reason I have an asterisk there is because all of these dates are a little bit fluid. Don't think those are absolutes. Three chapters, 12 through 14, we have the division of the kingdom, the f- description of the first one of the first tax revolts in history when um, Jeroboam in the north, who was apparently a very charismatic individual, good leader, the people were really attracted to him. He was one of the key people in Solomon's administration, and uh, Solomon thought that he ought to get rid of him because too many people were following him, so he had to escape Solomon's wrath and head down to Egypt for a while. And he came back after Solomon died and Rehoboam became king and tried to talk them, talk some sense into them to lower taxes. Taxes had become very onerous under Solomon. And so uh, Sol, uh, Rehoboam didn't listen. He listened to his younger advisors. That forced a division of the kingdom. Now, under this, I have in blue there the word antagonism. And that goes beyond just these first uh, three chapters. 12, 1 to 14, 31 is about the division of the kingdom. But because of the division of the kingdom, there's this antagonism that develops between the north and the south. And that dominates the relationships between Israel and Judah from t- chapter 12 through chapter 16. After that, they start to get together once we get into the uh, time period of Ahab and Jehoshaphat. The next major division, 15.1 to 16.28, we have the reigns of various kings. And the focus in the books of kings is primarily on the north. You get more detail about the northern kings of Israel than you do the southern kings. And then, starting within this section from 16.29 to 2 Kings 8.29, there is an alliance between the north and the south. Then from 1629, here's where you have your next major division, 1629 to 2240, we have the reign of Ahab. That's the real focal point here is what's going on with Ahab. Ahab is the son of Omri, so this is called the Omrid, O-M-R-I-D-E, Omrid dynasty. And it is during the reign of Ahab that Elijah comes up, and Elijah starts uh, presenting God's challenge to Ahab, and we have just all that wonderful challenge between Elijah and Ahab and Jezebel. And see, Ahab is so important because he marries Jezebel, who is from, uh, he's, who's Phoenician, and she's from Tyre, and her father is one of the great kings of Tyre, who's also the high priest of Baal, and his name is Ithobaal, and uh, so she brings Baal worship and the whole fertility worship cult with her into the northern kingdom. The first stage of, of deterioration was when they went to idolatry under Jeroboam I. And then when uh, Ahab marries uh, Jezebel, Jezebel brings for the fertility worship in and things really get bad in the north. Chapters 2241 to 2250s, the fourth division, the second section, we have the reign of Jehoshaphat in Judah. Describe just a brief summary of about nine, ver- ten verses there. And then in 2251 to 2 Kings 2.25, we have the reign of Ahaziah in Israel. And so there's the focus on the sins in, in the northern kingdom 
And Elijah is taken to heaven in a fiery chariot and replaced by his successor, Elisha. So this gives us the divided kingdom. Now we go to the next chart. This gets into 2 Kings. Actually, the, the, the division, as I outlined on that first slide, is it's just part of that, but I broke this down in terms of the two books. The first uh, eight chapters or so, 1-1 one, one to 8-15, the focus is on Elisha under two kings, Ahaziah and Jehoram. And the focus here is on the miracles of Elisha. And then from 816 to 1620, we have the reigns of various kings in the north. Elisha is still prevalent at the beginning. You have ten kings of Israel described, uh, eight kings of Judah described. And we go back to a period of antagonism. So we start with antagonism from 1 Kings 12 to 16. Then there's a period of alliance up till we get to the point of of uh, First King, Second uh, Kings, eight sixteen. Now we're back to a period of antagonism between the two kingdoms. Four key kings are discussed: Jehu in the north, in Israel, that's the I, Athaliah, the queen, evil queen. She's the daughter of Jezebel and Ahab, and she marries the king in the south, and then tries to kill all the heirs. And Joash, who's in the south. And Judah and Ahaz. And then in 17.1 to 17.41 describes the fall of Israel with the Assyrian invasion. So in the course of this study, we'll start, we'll slow down when we get to 1 Kings 16.29, and that's just the last couple of verses of chapter 16. Go through the end of 1 Kings, keep going slow through the first eight chapters or so, eight or nine chapters of 2 Kings, and then when we get past Elisha, We'll kind of pick things up a little bit, pick up the speed, but we'll want to slow down and pay a little attention to what's going on with Athaliah, with the Assyrian invasion, and then the last um, eight chapters of uh, of Second Kings, where we're back to a single kingdom from 18:1 to 25:30, 18:1 to 21:26. Hezekiah is the primary focus. He's a good king. He initiates various reforms. Uh, He's guilty of arrogance. God's about to take him out under the sin unto death, and he repents, and there's recovery. But the evil that's been done has been so great that God is not going to forestall the discipline on Israel. He's followed by Manasseh, who is one of the most evil kings in all of history, and Ammon, who is another, his son, who is also an evil king. Then there is a period of grace before judgment with the godly king Josiah and then four, the last four evil kings. So 18.1 to 21.26, we have Hezekiah followed by two evil kings. Then 22.1 to 24.16, we have the godly king Josiah followed by four evil kings. And then 24.17 to 25.30, we have the fall of Judah. The Chaldean invasion and Judah is deported. So that gives you a good bird's eye view, good flyover of First and Second Kings and how things are structured, at least how I'm structuring them at this point. This is a lot of fun for me because I've never uh, taught through a lot of this stuff. I've taught through Elijah and Elisha a little in the past, but I haven't taught through the other material 
And what's interesting is a lot of archaeological things have been discovered in the last 20, 20, 25 years that are uh, relevant to our study, so I'm trying to pull some of that material in as well. So we'll have a lot of fun look at a lot of different things. Now, next, that was all under point six, which had to do with the structure, overall structure of the book. And point number, this is still under point six. That, that gave the summary. And then this shows that, that it's built on a chiasm. A chiasm, as you know, the term comes from the Greek letter chi or X. And as you structure things by way of an outline, you see the left-hand side of an X form. And so the first part begins with Solomon and the united monarchy, single kingdom. Uh, the first 11 chapters, chapters 1 through 11, 25. Then you have B, Jeroboam and Rehoboam, the two kingdoms. Then C, you have the kings of Judah and Israel, 15.1 to 16.22. Then we come to a focus on the Amrid dynasty from 1 Kings 16.23 through 2 Kings 12. That is a major chunk right out of the center. That tells us that the focal point from God's perspective on all of this history is what happens in the northern kingdom under Ahab. That's why that is so important, because that really tells us why the introduction of the fertility cult, the introduction uh, of, of just the rampant idolatry and the hostility to the Mosaic law, the Mosaic uh, religion, is rejected. So that's a big chunk. And then we come back to C prime, the kings of Judah and Israel from Second Kings 12 through 16, then the northern kingdom's uh, falls. That's B, the fall of the northern kingdom. That's parallel to Jeroboam and Rehoboam and the split. Now we have the fall of the northern uh, kingdom in Second uh, Kings 17, and then A, the single kingdom of Judah alone, 18 to 25. So that sort of gives you a basic basic structure of the book telling us where our focus is. Okay, now some characteristics, seven characteristics of kings. In first, first of all, in First Kings, the, there's a movement from empire, st- empire status to two weaker kingdoms. Just as I pointed out in the introduction, we move from the glory of Solomon to just the destruction of the nation. In 1 Kings, there's movement from empire to two weak kingdoms. By the end of 1 Kings, there's two weak kingdoms. Second, In 2 Kings, the movement is from two weak kingdoms to one weak kingdom. We just see this deterioration all the way through. Third, Israel has 19 kings in seven different dynasties for a period of 250 years. 19 kings, seven different dynasties. It's a soap opera in the north. Everybody ought to have fun on Tuesday nights. Why stay home and watch these shows on TV? You can just learn about Israel. And they're always fighting each other. Fourth, Judah has 20 kings in one dynasty, the house of David. And that covers a period of 390 years. Fifth characteristic 
David is the standard by which all subsequent kings in Judah are judged. He's the point of evaluation. How did they do in comparison to David? 2 Kings 14.3, 2 Kings 16.2, 2 Kings 18.3, and 2 Kings 22.2. All references in 2 Kings 14.3, In contrast, in the northern kingdom of Israel, Jeroboam I is the king by which the other kings are judged. Again and again and again it says that so-and-so followed in the sons of Jeroboam, the son of Devon, and worshipped in the high places. So they continue to worship. None of the kings in the north are given a positive evaluation report, not one in the north. But there are about four or five in the south that are. The point is the preservation of... And seventh point is the preservation of the Davidic line, 2 Kings 8, 19. So we see that critical to understanding both these books are going to be understanding the Mosaic Law and understanding the Davidic Covenant. That's the framework, as I pointed out last time with one of my slides. Okay, now a little bit about historical background. Historical background. We're going to deal with... Several kingdoms, and let me see here if I can find there we go the Assyrian Empire. This is a good map of the Middle East. It's quite relevant today. We have if you look over here where Babylon is located on the Euphrates River. If you just go due north to the Tigris and a little bit west, that's where modern Baghdad is located. So much of this area that's shaded in green in this part of the map is modern Iraq. This area up to the north, Aleppo, Carchemish, Haran, a lot of this area over here is part of modern Syria. This area up here to the north. Coming across this way, from the, here's the Black Sea in the north, looping down this way around Mount Ararat, coming down around uh, Lake Van and below and back. That's Turkey. This is Syria. Down here is a modern Hashemite kingdom of Jordan. And then over here you have Lebanon. And then down here, uh, modern state of Israel. So shows you just the, where things are located in terms of today. This is a map of the extent of the Assyrian Empire, which reaches its um, greatest expansion uh, during the, 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 destruct, the time the northern kingdom is destroyed in approximately 722 B.C. That will be followed by the Babylonian Empire. And you see the Babylonian, Babylonian Empire covers much of the same Territory, and we see that ex- the expansion of that comes at the end of Second Kings. So we'll get there a little later on. Now we're going to run through a lot of interesting names, and I'll probably get to a point where I can print a nice handout for you, so you don't have to uh, rely on a lot of this. But here we have the Assyrian king list. 
from Shalmaneser the third in 860 when the kingdom really begins to ramp ramp up the Assyrian kingdom under uh, Tiglath Pileser the first begins to dominate about the same time that David becomes king and it goes through various uh, ebbs and flows but under Shalmaneser the third about the middle of the ninth uh, century it begins to rise in ascendancy and to dominate uh, Middle Eastern uh, politics. Then you have a period from 823 down through 755 from Shamshi Adad to Ashurdan Third. That's just sort of a dark period there through those four kings. We don't know a lot about what's going on there. And then under Ashur Narari V, there's a, a new ascendancy of Assyrian uh, uh, politics, power, uh, culminates in really Sargon II and Sennacherib, and it's during the time of the reign of Shalmaneser V that uh, we have the northern kingdom taken out. Later on, under Sargon, Babylon starts to rear its head but doesn't quite pull things together yet. Then we have Sennacherib, and he invades down through into Judah outside the walls of Jerusalem. That's during the time of Hezekiah. And followed by Esarhaddon and Ashurbanipal when the Assyrian Empire goes out. You have various uh, Aramean rulers that we will look at. This is, they don't really have an empire, so it's, it, there's a lot of fluidity there in terms of Aramean rulers. Just when you think of Aram or Aramea, think of Syria. Their capital is Damascus, same as the capital of Syria today is Damascus. Then we have our Babylonian kings, Nabopolassar from 625 to 605, uh, his son Nebuchadnezzar II, 605 to 562, followed by evil Merodach, Nergleser, uh short reign of Labashi Marduk, and Nabonidus, who has a co-regency with Belshazzar. Belshazzar is the one that sees the handwriting on the wall. So we'll look at the a lot of study related to the background of the Assyrian Empire, the Syrian Empire and its rise, uh, Babylonian Empire. Along with that, we're going to also deal with the Phoenicians. We have Hiram, who Solomon goes to for the uh, for uh, supplies for uh, a lot of the lumber that is used in the building of the of the uh, temple. They would float it down to. Jaffa, which is near modern Tel Aviv. Jaffa is the same place that uh, the port that Jonah is going to leave from to head to Tarshish. Jaffa is the same place where Peter is sleeping and has a vision of the of the uh, tablecloth coming down from heaven. So Jaffa is the port. They would float the logs down from Tyre and then they would transport them overland from Jaffa. Jaffa is now completely surrounded by modern Tel Aviv. We'll also look at, um, let's see, Moab. And the Misha stone has been discovered. This lists various kings in different, con- different empires, very valuable archaeologically. We'll also deal with the Ammonite Empire, the Edomite Empire, and Egyptian Empire. Uh, remember Solomon Mary's. Pharaoh's daughter. That says a lot. It says something about the grandeur of Solomon's empire that Egypt would want to marry off the Pharaoh's daughter to Solomon. 
And so modern archaeology, you know, may not you may not realize this, but in modern Israeli archaeologically, there's a archaeology. There's a whole group called minimalists. They don't believe there was ever a David, there was ever an Abraham, there was ever a Solomon. That this is just legends that the Jews made. In fact, they were never in Egypt. But then they have troubles with some of these things. That why in the world would they even create a legend of, of Pharaoh's daughter marrying? Solomon. Then you have those who are kind of in the middle who aren't really sure how how accurate the Old Testament is, and things like this really give them a lot of pause. It shows some things, too, about, about Egypt, and we'll get into that as we discuss uh, those things. Various, uh, I'll try to bring in, have pictures of a lot of these extra-biblical uh, sources, that archaeological things that have been discovered which reinforce the accuracy of the biblical text. And then um, skipping over some of these things that are not as important in my notes. Um, okay, last, let's see what I have here. Oh, yeah, this is important. The prophets of the southern kingdom. This is just a list of all the different prophets that we'll have in uh Kings and Chronicles, a lot of these went, were sent north. We have Shemaiah, Edo, Oded, Azariah, Hanani, Jehu, Eliezer, the Joel who wrote the book of Joel, uh, Zechariah, the book of Zechariah, Isaiah, Micah, Amos. These are all operational in the southern kingdom. Plus you have several other minor ones that are unnamed. You have an unnamed prophet. Uh, the prophets who relate to the southern kingdom alone are Zephaniah, Nahum, Habakkuk, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel. Here we have two maps. The one, I thought I'd put these up like this because they give you a comparison. The map on the left shows the greatest expansion under David and Solomon. The red area in the middle is Saul, represents Saul's kingdom. The blue represents David and Solomon's kingdom. And Jews lived in most of those areas. But the green represents territory that was under tribute to Solomon, but the Jew, Jewish tribes were not settling there. The river right up here at the north is the Euphrates, and all of this land from the Euphrates down to the river of Egypt, all of this land, and further west or east all the way to the Euphrates is part of the land that God gave to Abraham. The map on the right shows what happens during the split between the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. The, the, you have Judah in the south. They still don't control the Gaza Strip. See, that's where Philistia was, is the, what we call the Gaza Strip today. So you see, every, everything, uh, more things change, the more they stay the same. You have Phoenicia or Lebanon up here to the north. Syria has had control, uh, that's Aram. Syria had control of the Golan Heights. That's the west or the east bank of the Sea of Galilee. And this is the division of the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. Now, um, one last note on chronology. 
there's a lot of problems in chronology dealing with the kings because the, I pointed this out a little bit last time because of the way the, the people in the ancient world counted time. In our world, when uh, if a somebody if a president becomes president, for example, uh, when uh, President Kennedy was assassinated. Uh, LBJ became president November 23rd, what it was at, 1963, November 22nd, 1963, whatever that was. And, but that's not, 1963 wasn't considered a, his first year to be uh, president. He only was president for a month and a half, six weeks. But in the way the ancient world would, would evaluate that that first year when he becomes president his accession year in some systems that would count as year one in other systems year one would not be until 1964 we would count how many years from november 22nd of 63 to when did he go out in january 5th of 69 so we would say, you know, whatever that is, 63, 66, uh, five years and six weeks. We would count every day. That's not how they did things in the ancient world. So if you became king one day before the new year, that could be your first year. And then if you died two days after the new year, that would be your second year. So you reigned for two years. Or in, if you were in the northern kingdom, they would say, no, we're not going to count the accession year. As the first year, we'll only count the, the the partial three days he reigned the second year, so he reigned for one year. And we would say, well, the guy reigned for three days. So when you start comparing these calendars, it gets very confusing because they they weren't consistent. The northern kingdom changed for a period halfway through. During that period of alliance with Judah, they changed. It gets confusing. If you add up all the numbers that are listed going through kings, then the total reign is much greater than the time period from the death of Solomon in 931 to the destruction of Jerusalem in 586. So there was a scholar by the name of Tilu who came along with a book called The Mysterious Numbers of the Hebrew Kings where he went through all of this and came up with a solution to most of these chronological conundrums and he looked at their co-regencies, that there were a lot of co-regencies and interregnums. For example, uh, you have uh, Hezekiah uh, reigns till he, till he dies, but he had a co-regency with his son Manasseh for a while. So that overlap is attributed to both of them and makes it look like there was a much longer period of, of reign. Now, the criticism that's come out recently of Tilly is he had too many co-regencies. So there's there's a lot of flux there, and I just don't have the time to crank through all these chronological problems. I've been, I, I like to, and I've read a lot about them over the years, but I'm just not completely satisfied. And and there was a pastors' conference Schaefer Seminary had in Minnesota that I didn't go to, and it was in '99, I think, or maybe it was in '98. And they had four different conservative biblical Egyptologists come and speak on the on the exodus and the date of the exodus. They all agreed pretty much with the date of the exodus because they, they all believed biblical numbers. But none of them agreed as to who the pharaoh of the exodus was. And that's sort of the state of these things. You 
we, we can be sure of a couple of dates, like 586 is when the southern kingdom went out, 722 is when the northern kingdom went out. But I've even run across some material by some good conservatives who are questioning some of the dates on the Solomonic uh, reign that, that David died in 971. They say, nah, David died uh, 50 years earlier. They're, they've added another 50 years in there, so I don't have time to go through all that. But you just need to be aware that these these are issues. I even have good friends that are conservative archaeologists who have number of problems with different different systems that are put together. So nobody's really happy with our understanding of how they counted time right now. It doesn't get you millions or billions of years, though, okay, or even thousands of years. At the largest extent, you might have a 500-year difference between how some view the timing for uh, Noah's flood and how others view it. You have a difference between a creation date in some systems of 4,000 and others of about 46, 4,700. So there's not a lot of differences there. Okay, that ought to get us a good overview background familiarization tour of First and Second Kings. And next time, we're going to start off with a very old, uh, very passive, very inactive David and first Kings one one David. Now David, King David was old, advanced in years, and they put covers on him, but he could not get warm. He had a problem. We'll get there next week. Father, thank you for this opportunity to study these things and to get oriented to this uh, fascinating study, fascinating period of history. And we pray that we would be, um, Submissive to God the Holy Spirit as he teaches us and we see application that uh, relates to each of our lives and that we would remember that all scripture is given for uh, teaching, for reproof, for correction and righteousness, that we might be equipped for every aspect of life. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.